0: Hi, listeners. Before I start the show this week, a quick note about the racial language in the episode. I use some words and phrases that were very common during the late 19th century when the episode set, and they were considered polite at the time. For the most part, I use these words and phrases in direct quotes from period sources, though I do repeat one phrase in particular several times outside of direct quotes. It's a question that's central to this week's theme, and it was always asked using this particular phrasing. Obviously, times change, and language that was common and polite at the time is neither today. I apologize if you find the phrase jarring as you listen. It certainly was uncomfortable to have to say it out loud so many times, even sitting here alone in my basement. Consider yourselves warned. All right, here we go. Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the freedom trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 217, Richard Greener and the White Problem. Hi, I'm Jake. Subscribers will know that I republished about a dozen classic episodes into the podcast feed over the past few weeks to celebrate Black History Month. It is a little bit embarrassing, though, that none of the new episodes we released this month focused on Black history. That's why I'm releasing this episode today, February 28th, the last possible day of Black History Month. This week, I'll talk about Professor Richard T. Greener, who grew up in Boston in the shadow of the abolition movement, graduated from Harvard, and became one of the foremost Black intellectuals of his era. However soon after publishing his most influential work, when it seemed like he might take up the mantle of Frederick Douglass, he instead sank into obscurity. He was nearly forgotten for over a century, until his legacy was rediscovered in 2009 in a discarded steamer trunk in a dusty attic on Chicago's south side. But before we talk about Professor Greener, I'd like to pause and thank our latest sponsors, Eliza T. and Daniel D., Thanks to loyal listeners like them, we can cover the costs of producing the show. Costs like web hosting and security, podcast media hosting, transcription services, and file storage. Listeners like Eliza choose to help Hub History on an ongoing basis by supporting us with $2, $5, or even $10 monthly on Patreon. Folks like Daniel can also make a generous one-time donation via PayPal. If you'd like to join them, you can go to patreon.com/hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support us link to see all the ways you can help us make hub history. And thanks to all our new and returning sponsors. And now it's time for this week's main topic. At the turn of the 20th century, Americans of all political stripes were pondering what to do about what they called the negro problem. Starting after the Civil War, and especially with the end of Reconstruction and the implementation of Jim Crow in the South, white Americans wondered what should be done about the millions of black Americans who were now no longer enslaved. These new citizens tended to be impoverished, with little or no formal education, and few job prospects beyond sharecropping and menial labor. For some white Americans, the answer was the creation of elaborate black codes in the South that criminalized African-American life and returned tens of thousands of men who had previously been enslaved into servitude as prisoners. For others, the answer was uplift, and a boom in college foundings from the 1860s to the 1890s created what are now recognized as historically black colleges and universities. For many white Americans, the new urgency of the so-called Negro problem led to a brief resurgence of the colonization movement, which sought to use free black Americans to colonize territories in Africa. This movement had seen its heyday in the decades before the Civil War, when slave owners saw it as a convenient way to make sure that free blacks weren't hanging around in America educating those who were still enslaved and encouraging uprisings. In the 1840s, the American Colonization Society even founded the nation of Liberia, on the west coast of Africa, with African Americans and a few whites establishing a settlement that became the city of Monrovia. No matter what they thought the answer was, most American whites thought the so-called Negro problem was up to whites to solve. For all the white concern about that Negro problem in the late 19th and early 20th century, The work with that name that's most known today is a book of essays by black writers, collected by Booker T. Washington in 1903. It features contributions by well-known authors like T. Thomas Fortune and Charles Chestnut, but at its heart, it's a showcase of the disagreement between Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois. On the one hand, Washington argues for the sole focus on achieving economic gains through practical skills in his essay... Industrial Education for the Negro. On the other hand, Du Bois argues for the cultivation of a new generation of thinkers, teachers, and leaders through classical education in his still-controversial essay, The Talented Tenth. The idea that black people were a problem was so cemented in the American mind that over a half-century later, James Baldwin was still wrestling with it, writing, What do people mean when they say the Negro problem? I've never quite known what they meant. There isn't such a thing as a Negro, but there is such a thing as a boy or a man or a woman, who may be brown or white or green or whatever, but when you say the Negro problem, you create a great big monolith, and beneath this wall are thousands of millions of human beings' lives, which are being destroyed because you want to deal with an abstraction. However, one American scholar turned this formulation on its head. Writing in 1894, possibly inspired by a recent partnership with Frederick Douglass, Professor R.T. Greener published an essay titled, The White Problem. In the introduction, he argued that whatever the problem was, African Americans were better off solving it on their own. There was no Negro problem that it was up to whites to solve. Instead, the white obsession with this question was itself the problem. A phase of the white problem is seen in the determination not only to treat the Negro as a member of a childlike race, but the grim determination to keep him a child or a ward. In every advance since emancipation, it has, with true Caucasian gall, been assumed that everything must be done for him, and under no circumstances must he be allowed to do for himself. In religion, in politics, in civil and social life, he must be developed in a pen, staked off from the rest of mankind, and nursed, coddled, fed, and trained by eight of the longest spoons, forks, and rakes obtainable. All along there has been heard the solemn, low refrain of doubt, small hope, and feeble expectation as to the probable survival of this black infant. Indeed, nothing is so weighed upon the average American Christian heart as the precarious health of this infant, whom no one had the heart exactly to kill, were it possible, but whose noiseless and peaceful departure to a better world would have been hailed with smothered sighs of intense relief. You can see how Professor Greener's The White Problem helped lay the intellectual groundwork for later black scholars like W.E.B. Du Bois and William Monroe Trotter. But he also laid some other, more immediately practical groundwork for them as well. When those scholars got their degrees from Harvard... Du Bois with a Ph.D. in 1895 and Trotter with a master's in 1896, it was during a brief era when an Ivy League education was relatively attainable for black scholars, at least for those who made up what Du Bois would later describe as that talented tenth. That opportunity is directly attributable to Professor Greener's career at Harvard a generation before. Richard Theodore Greener was born in Philly in 1844, and experienced a surprisingly broad swath of the world as a young child, as Allison Blakely described in an article on Greener in a 1974 issue of the Journal of Negro History. Greener's paternal grandfather, Jacob Greener, was a well-known Negro educator in Baltimore. His father, Richard Wesley Greener, was a seaman whom he once accompanied on a voyage to Liverpool. His maternal grandfather was a Spaniard from the West Indies, which accounted for Greener's very light complexion. Richard and his mother moved to Cambridge after his father disappeared when he was about nine years old, possibly to seek his fortune in the goldfields of California. For about two years, he attended the Broadway Grammar School at the southwest corner of Broadway and Windsor, where the Fletcher Maynard Academy stands today. In a 2020 profile in the Harvard Crimson, Sophia Liang writes, Although he showed an early aptitude for literature and the classics at the Broadway Grammar School, he left school at age 11 to support his family. His odd jobs in Boston put him in the center of what he called the storm and stress of 1855-62, when racial justice debates erupted throughout the city. Over the next few years, he worked in a shoe store, a wood engraving shop, as a porter in a Tremont Street hotel, with a fruit importer for a newspaper— and, finally, as a porter for a Washington Street jeweler. This was four or five years after the three attempts in Boston to free men who'd been accused under the Fugitive Slave Act, one of which was successful. The Vigilance Committee was still actively helping people who were in the process of escaping from slavery find safe havens or find passage to Canada. And it was around the time that the Secret Six began raising money to finance John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. So Boston was full of excitement for a teenaged Greener. Another profile, this one by Michael David Cohen for the African American Intellectual History Society, describes how he always managed to wind up in the middle of the action. From the beginning, Greener developed a knack for meeting prominent Americans and for showing up on the field of racial action. As a boy, he caught glimpses of Charles Sumner and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. At age 16, he helped protect Wendell Phillips from a mob at a Boston anti-slavery meeting whose speakers also included Frederick Douglass. Despite the excitement, all Greener could think of was finding a way to further his education. He worked for Augustus E. Batchelder, a silversmith by training who was a partner at the shop Palmer & Batchelder's on Washington Street in Boston. They advertised fancy goods, like... Watches, jewelry, silver-plated, and Britannia ware, as well as watchmakers and jewelers' tools. Richard Greener ran errands and made deliveries, and he eventually approached his boss with a proposal. If Batchelder would provide the funds, Greener was willing to, quote, "...do nothing else but study for the next ten years if necessary." The boss agreed to put up the money, and another Bostonian who he ran errands for, the Secret Six member Franklin Benjamin Sanborn, helped Greener enroll in a prep school in Ohio attached to Oberlin College. At Oberlin, Greener experienced what he called color phobia and felt that his education wasn't progressing as well as it should because of it. He decided to leave Oberlin after the first year of his two-year program, selecting first Phillips Exeter... And then, when they turned him down, Phillips Andover, as a better fit to complete his Harvard Preparatory Program. He entered Andover as a senior, but struggled to keep up as it dawned on him that his preparation at Oberlin, especially in math and science, had not measured up to his classmates. Nevertheless, he was able to graduate with his class, and, as the Crimson profile continues, After Greener graduated from Andover... Batchelder recommended him to Harvard President Thomas Hill as an experiment in the education of black students. Hill, wishing to modernize the university, granted Greener a spot at the college and declared, I love the young man and admire his spirit. When Richard Greener entered Harvard as a 21-year-old freshman in 1865, only one other African-American undergraduate had matriculated to the school. Beverly Garnett Williams had been admitted as a member of the freshman class of 1847, but he died just weeks before the school year began. In 1850, Daniel Lang Jr., Isaac H. Snowden, and Martin Delany were admitted to Harvard Medical School. They all had experience as medical technicians or physician's assistants, and they were all sponsored by the American Colonization Society, having pledged to emigrate to Liberia after their medical training. A month after they started their training, they got kicked out after white students complained that the admission of blacks to the medical lectures is highly detrimental to the interests and welfare of the institution of which we are members, and said they had no objection to the education and elevation of blacks, but do decidedly remonstrate against their presence in college with us. Before Greener stepped onto Harvard Yard, African Americans had only been welcome on the campus as servants to white students and faculty. At least two of the 17th century Harvard presidents enslaved black people to cook, clean, and pick up after them. As researcher Caitlin DeAngelis writes, During the middle of the 18th century, every person in a position of authority at Harvard was a slave owner. The president, the professors, the head tutor, Working for Harvard meant that they didn't have to pay taxes on the people they enslaved. It was subsidized slave ownership. Harvard actively recruited enslavers in both the 18th and 19th centuries. It bent over backwards to accommodate the sons of Caribbean sugar planters and southern plantation owners. After Massachusetts outlawed slavery in the final decades of the 18th century, Harvard continued to benefit from slavery that took place elsewhere. Families like the royals and vassals who had beautiful estates in Cambridge sent their children to Harvard using the proceeds from their sugar plantations in the Caribbean. With DeAngelis continuing, In the 18th century, Harvard charged double tuition to the wealthy sons of sugar planters. Some of them paid in literal casks of sugar. In return, those students were fellow commoners and were exempt from the rules of deference that governed the behavior of undergrads. During the antebellum period, Harvard bent the rules for Southern students, like Alfred Moore Rhett of Charleston. His dad was a senator from South Carolina and owned the very pro-secession Charleston Mercury. In 1850, Senator Rhett withdrew Alfred from Harvard because the Anti-Fugitive Slave Act protests, quote, kept him excited and distracted from his studies. Senator Rhett asked Harvard to give Alfred his degree anyway, even though he didn't earn it, and they did. On the Harvard campus, free African Americans worked as butlers, porters, cleaners, and personal servants to students and faculty. They were also enlisted to participate in deeply racist studies, as biology professor Louis Agassiz attempted to prove that the different human races had actually evolved as completely different species. They did not walk the halls as students, at least not until 1865. As you might imagine, Richard T. Greener's presence on the campus led to wild speculation about what he was doing there. In an essay he wrote around the time of his graduation, Greener described some of what he called the many false impressions about me, such as that I escaped from slavery with innumerable difficulties, that I came direct from the cotton field to college, that I was a scout in the Union Army, the son of a rebel general, etc. During his freshman year, Greener excelled in language studies, earning a Lee Prize for oratory. However, his struggle with math and science continued. At the end of the year, Harvard president Thomas Hill wrote to Greener's sponsor Augustus Batchelder with unwelcome news. His mathematical preparation was so utterly insufficient that he cannot possibly keep up with his class in that department. The faculty, therefore, strongly recommend him to withdraw from college and come back in September to join the next freshman class. In her Crimson Profile, Sophia Liang writes, Still determined to graduate, Greener worked with a private mathematics tutor, returned to college, and found his second freshman year much more successful. He wrote for the newly founded Harvard Advocate, joined the Pi Etta Society for Literature and Theater, and became friends with the second black student in the freshman class. He would go on to win first Bowdoin Prize for a dissertation on Irish land tenure, and graduate with honors in 1870. Throughout his college years, Greener continued his knack of being in the right place at the right time to make acquaintances that would serve him well in his later career. Doctors Lady June Cole and Bruce K. Cole wrote in a 2018 biographical sketch, Greener made significant contacts while at Harvard. His meeting of U.S. Senator Charles Sumner, also a Harvard graduate, and President Ulysses S. Grant during their visits to campus proved fortuitous to Greener's professional career. In addition, through his extracurricular activities, he developed relationships with students from the world's most powerful families. Moreover, his exposure to Boston's old guard abolitionists and anti-slavery leaders taught him to stand up for his rights. By the time he graduated, Richard Greener was proficient enough at science and math to keep up with his class, but he excelled in languages. Along with his award-winning oratory in English, he also learned Latin and Greek. He expressed a desire to study law, saying that his goal was to get all the knowledge I can, make all the reputation I can, and do good, and make a comfortable competence as the corollaries of the other two. To put it in today's terms, he said that he wanted to do well by doing good. As the doctors Cole point out, by graduating from Harvard in 1870, Greener was leaving a sheltered world at a time when most black men did not enjoy the security and opportunities he had found access to. At Harvard, Greener learned the liberating feeling of meritocracy. In that protected world, he felt that the only limitation to his success was his own imagination and effort. Having been shielded from the vagaries of the war during his preparatory studies at Oberlin and Phillips Andover Academy, he was unaware of the social transformation the nation was undergoing. In 1870, America was in the midst of Reconstruction. The U.S. military occupied the states of the former Confederacy, which were forced to submit new state constitutions that provided civil rights for all citizens, including black citizens. This led to a brief period of unprecedented opportunity for black people in the South, as they could vote and hold public office for the first time. It also led to a period of unprecedented white terrorism and violence, as the first iteration of the Ku Klux Klan carried out murders and intimidation across the region. White resentment of black political power in the South was often reflected with similar violence in the North. Against this backdrop, Greener began a career in academia. Lacking the funds to immediately attend law school, he took a job as a principal of a segregated school in Philadelphia from September 1870 until December 1872. The job was open because his predecessor had been shot to death in a race riot. The AAIHS profile notes, While teaching at Philadelphia's Institute for Colored Youth, now Cheney University, he continued to appear at momentous events. On election day in 1871, he saw a white police officer shoot at an unarmed black man and then found a black colleague killed by a white political operative. Sparking community outrage and resonating today, the jury acquitted the operative, despite numerous eyewitnesses' testimony to the murder. After leaving that job, he took a job as the principal at Sumner High, another segregated school in Washington, D.C., He only stayed there for about three months, leaving to work for Frederick Douglass at the newspaper, The New National Era. While Richard Greener was getting acquainted with Frederick Douglass, the state legislature in South Carolina was dominated by radical Republicans, including former abolitionists and several black men. Black men found their way into a number of state agencies and departments, and they even found a foothold in the University of South Carolina. In October of 1873, Richard Greener headed to the American South for the first time, accepting a position as Professor of Mental and Moral Philosophy at the University of South Carolina at Columbia. The Coles describe what this transition was like for him. His experience as a professor at USC, including his active campaigning for civil rights in the state during Reconstruction, shaped his views on social justice and the value of equal access to education. At the start of Reconstruction, the University of South Carolina was an experiment in integrated education. Its board of trustees, faculty, and student body included members of both races. Being its sole African-American professor, Greener was an important part of the experiment. By educating black and white men at the university, Greener hoped to foster cooperation between the races and elevate the political and economic status of freedmen. Because the school was perennially underfunded, and because of his innate abilities, Greener was given a broader set of responsibilities than a junior faculty member would have normally received in a more stable academic setting. In addition to teaching mental and moral philosophy at the university, he taught Latin, Greek, and math at the preparatory school, and served as secretary of the faculty committee, librarian, reorganizing a 27,000-volume collection cast into chaos during the Civil War, financial aid officer, and law school professor. Also during this period, he was appointed treasurer of the USC Corporation and a member of the state commission to revise the state school system. During his spare time, editors note, what spare time? He pursued his dream of obtaining a law degree from the new USC law school, got married, and had his first child. However, in spite of, or perhaps because of all the activities and responsibilities that competed for his time, at the University of South Carolina, as at Harvard, Greener enjoyed a measure of equality that most members of his race would never experience. Because black children in South Carolina had few opportunities to attend school at all before the Civil War, and not much had changed since, one of Greener's key innovations at the university was grooming incoming students. At least at first, more students were enrolled at the college's prep school, and in the new greener invention, the sub-freshman class. The first year, there were about 20 students at the university, including the sub freshmen Because all the white students quit in protest, it soon became what the Coles called a golden age of African Americans in higher education. The second year, 115 students were enrolled, and things were looking up. Each year that the school stayed open, there were more qualified students coming into the prep school, more sub-freshmen, and more qualified freshmen at the university. Even Greener himself took advantage of the opportunities during this window. He got his law degree from the newly opened law school at the University of South Carolina and was admitted to the bar in 1876. The following year, he was admitted to the bar in Washington, D.C. as well it looked like a bold new era of racial uplift and black self-reliance was dawning in the South. Until former Confederate General Wade Hampton III got himself elected governor. After a decade of vigilante violence and overt terrorism by the KKK, the Red Shirts, and other white groups, Hampton and his group of so-called Redeemers managed to overturn the multiracial government of South Carolina and establish a new era of codified white supremacy. Believing that it was completely impossible for whites and blacks to be educated together in the same classes, Hampton closed the University of South Carolina. When it reopened, it was once again segregated. This was, of course, a tragedy for black South Carolinians, but it was also a real kick in the teeth for Professor R.T. Greener. The Coles wrote, When he left to take his position at the University of South Carolina, Greener had hoped that an innate sense of justice would eventually put an end to senseless prejudice in the U.S. However, the end of Reconstruction brought with it an end to the circumstances that had contributed to Greener's success. As the federal government pulled back troops in the South from enforcing civil rights for blacks, Greener struggled to make a place for himself in public life. He concluded that African Americans had hoped in vain for change, and that only agitation would obtain justice. As Cohen's AAIHS profile lays out, Greener's next few years were a time of transition from academia to activism. Having earned his law degree while teaching, he joined a Washington, D.C. practice and became dean of the Howard University Law Department. In 1881, he used his legal credentials to help defend a black U.S. Military Academy cadet accused of faking an attack by white classmates. Greener lost the case but earned a national reputation. Greener became a prominent scholar of race. It was around this time that Greener reconnected with Frederick Douglass, working both alongside and against the older man. At the time, Greener was moving away from the Republican Party as not being supportive enough of African-American rights as Reconstruction crumbled, while Douglas continued to support the party that had fought alongside him to end slavery. Much later, Greener recalled what it had been like to grow up in the shadow of Frederick Douglass in Boston. As a Boston boy, I well recall my first sight of Mr. Douglass in the late 50s. It was in the old Melodion on Washington Street where the anti-slavery conventions and women's rights conventions were wont to be held. I'd been accustomed to read Frederick Douglass's paper The North Star, but was too young to have formed any clear notion about his personality. Through the kindness of my mentor and early friend William C. Nell, whose statue of Attucks, his life's stream is at last, thank God, erected, I was privileged to go to the rear of the stage entrance, and there, for the first time, saw in one group... Douglas, Garrison, Abby Kelly Foster, Purvis, Sojourner Truth, Phillips, Pillsbury, and William Wells Brown. There was a clash of opinion, all I at present recall, and Sojourner Truth, slender, black, weird, CRS in speech and manner, Sybil indeed, a fit foil to Douglas, was opposed. But it was the fencing of the representatives, man and woman, of the black race afterward at the annual bazaars at the 12th baptist church where he lectured and on the first anniversary of the hanging of john brown when a boston mayor tried to put down free speech and occasioned wendell phillips finest effort mobs and education i had an opportunity to see to know to enjoy his personal friendship and reverently study the manifold phases of his unique character in a series of formal debates in the early 1880s Greener would argue that the nation's new class of freedmen should move to the Western territories where the existing structures of white supremacy would have less power over them, while Douglas argued that they should work within America's political system to institute greater civil rights protections. When Greener would succinctly and eloquently sum up the failures of Reconstruction during these debates, his older foe would join the audience in applauding him. In 1883, they took their show on the road organizing a National Convention of Colored Men in Lexington, Kentucky, where Douglas continued to insist that black men deserved a place at the table. That this denial of rights to us is because of our color, only as color is a badge of condition, is a manifest in the fact that no matter how decently dressed or well-behaved a colored man may be, he is denied civil treatment in the ways thus pointed out unless he comes as a servant. His color, not his character, determines the place he shall hold and the kind of treatment he shall receive. That this is due to a prejudice and has no rational principle under it is seen in the fact that the presence of colored persons in hotels and rail cars is only offensive when they are there as guests and passengers. As servants, they are welcome, but as equal citizens, they are not. It's also seen in the further fact that nowhere else on the globe, except in the United States, are colored people subject to insult and outrage on account of color. The colored traveler in Europe does not meet it, and we denounce it here as a disgrace to American civilization and American religion, and as a violation of the spirit and letter of the Constitution of the United States. Through his dialogue and sometimes tense partnership with Frederick Douglass, Richard Greener built a national reputation. Though he's mostly remembered today as the first black Harvard graduate, in his own time, Greener moved in the circles of the African-American intellectual elite, and he was considered one of the leading race men of the late 19th century. His partnership with Douglas continued the next year. His partnership with Douglas continued in 1884, when the two men were among ten authors who contributed essays on the topic The Future of the Negro for the North American Review. The contribution by Douglas was fatalistic, seeing few options open to the black masses but to, in Douglas's words, adjust himself to American civilization. In the face of history, I do not deny that a darker future than I have indicated may await the black man. Contact of weak races with strong has not always been beneficent. The weak have been oppressed, persecuted, driven out, and destroyed. The Hebrews in Egypt, the Moors in Spain... The Caribs in the West Indies, the Picts in Scotland, the Indians and Chinese in our own country, show what may happen to the Negro. But happily, he has a moral and political hold upon this country, deep and firm, one which in some measure destroys the analogy between him and other weak peoples and classes. His religion and civilization are in harmony with those of the people among whom he lives. He worships with them in common temple and at common altar. And to drag him away is to destroy the temple and tear down the altar. Drive out the Negro, and you drive out Christ, the Bible, and American liberty with him. Greener, on the other hand, saw promise again in migration. But by this time, he was less enthused about immigration to the Midwest and West. Instead, he was more focused on circulation in and out of the southern states, which other authors in that pre-Great Migration collection identified as the natural and perhaps perpetual home of African Americans. Greener began, The Negro will migrate, just as he has for 50 years, though not impelled by the same causes. The nucleus of the Negro population of Baltimore, Philadelphia, New York City, and Boston came originally from Virginia, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Louisiana they came by reason of manumission, by flight, or remained when their two confiding masters brought them up on northern soil. Since the war, there's been a constant ebb and flow of this interstate migration, and in many instances it has completely overslowed the more stable pre-war population of the cities mentioned. The stream has penetrated far to the west and northwest, where many have gone, and where they receive higher wages than they did at the south. On the other hand, at the close of the rebellion, many of the younger men, born at the North, went south, generally settling in the states from which their fathers had migrated. They took an active part in Reconstruction politics. Of those born at the South prior to the war, a large number followed Union officers home, gained educational advantages, a knowledge of men and affairs, and have since returned as teachers and businessmen. Hitherto, migration has followed the natural law, and seemed confined to the younger men. Now, the impulse affects those of mature age, and the South seems, as it should be, their natural goal. Perhaps presaging Marcus Garvey's views on black nationalism a half-century later, Greener foresaw an era when African Americans would return to their ancestral continent. Not, however, forced onto ships by a colonization society in order to rid the U.S. of its so-called Negro problem, but instead as an expansion of their already growing political and economic power. From the United States, the stream of civilization will inevitably lead to Africa. The rich tablelands east of Liberia will be occupied first, and we may look for many radiating currents therefrom. It would be poetic justice to see a Negro-American civilization redeeming Africa. The antipathy formerly felt by the Negro-American to colonization has passed away. He now sees quite clearly that to civilize Africa is to exalt the Negro race. Throughout, he stresses the importance of education and self-reliance, with his essay closing, The most hopeful sign for the Negro today is his indisposition to be carried and cared for he aspires to own his house, manage his own plantation, conduct his own business, teach his own school. It is not his fault that he can't rid himself of the professed philanthropist and the professed politician. They will insist, despite the Negro's protest, upon praying, thinking, preaching, voting, and caring for him. About a decade later, after Greener and Douglas had drifted apart, They would each revisit the subject of the so-called Negro Problem, which still dominated public discourse. This was a pivotal time, coming at the last years of Douglass' life, and Greener's treatment of the problem set him up as a logical heir to Douglass' throne. Greener, however, would end up taking a very different career path. In 1893, Chicago hosted the World's Columbian Exposition, turning almost 700 lakefront acres into a gleaming new, great white city. Frederick Douglass pointed out that the nickname was appropriate because of more than just a fresh coat of white paint. The project's leadership was exclusively white, the workforce they hired was nearly all white, and black Americans were restricted to visiting the exposition only on a single, designated, colored day. Ida B. Wells led a boycott of the fair, while Frederick Douglass was appointed as a representative of the nation of Haiti in their pavilion, ensuring that he had official access to the fair and giving him a base from which to deliver a number of lectures and orations. During one of these speeches, a heckler interrupted him and asked what America should do about its Negro problem. Douglass put away his prepared remarks and replied, We hear nowadays of a frightful problem called a Negro problem. What is this problem?" As usual, the North is humbugged. The Negro problem is a Southern device to mislead and deceive. There is, in fact, no such problem. The real problem has been given a false name. It is called Negro for a purpose. It is substituted Negro for nation because the one is despised and hated and the other is loved and honored. The true problem is a national problem. It has been affirmed on the one hand and denied on the other that the Negro since emancipation has made commendable progress. I affirm that no people emancipated under the same conditions could have made more commendable progress than has the Negro in the same length of time. Under the whole heavens, there never was an enslaved people emancipated under more unfavorable circumstances or started from a lower condition in life. Alluding to the rush to mend the bonds between white Northerners and white Southerners that led both sides to abandon the experiment of Reconstruction, he continued, We fought for your country. We ask that we be treated as well as those who fought against your country. We love your country. We ask that you treat us as well as you do those who love but a part of it. Men talk of the Negro problem. There is no Negro problem. The problem is whether the American people have honesty enough, loyalty enough, honor enough, or patriotism enough to live up to their own constitution. Maybe Professor R.T. Greener read a transcript of Douglass' remarks and got inspired. Or maybe he just felt that he needed to take on the racial question one more time before embarking on a new chapter in his career. But either way, his essay was published the following year, in 1894. 1894. I'm honestly not sure what magazine first carried it. When I searched for a copy, I kept finding excerpts and partial reprints in different newspapers around the country. The first complete copy I came up with was from the journal of Edward Everett Hale's Linda Hand Society, an organization that still exists in Boston. As we heard earlier, the central theme was that there was no Negro problem that it required white benefactors to drag a benighted race up from slavery. Instead, there was a white problem, with the dominant culture refusing to recognize the degree to which black Americans had taken an active role in creating the abolition movement, fighting for freedom in the Civil War, and then building economic and political power in the post-war years. Another difficulty of this white problem is the universal belief that somehow the Negro race began its career with President Lincoln's proclamation. All such novices would do well to look up their old histories, newspapers, and pamphlets. He was the agricultural laborer and the artisan at the South, the trusted servant and companion. At the North, he took part in all mechanical pursuits, helped build the houses, worked on the first newspapers, made the first woodcuts, and was the best pressman at Charleston, Philadelphia, and Boston. In every industrial, social, and political movement, as well as in the different warlike struggles, he has borne an honorable part, which to profess ignorance of is not creditable, or if denied, shows willful prejudice. He was on the heights of Abraham with Wolfe, in the French and Indian wars with Braddock, the first martyr of the Revolution, is seen in Trumbull's picture retreating with the Patriots from Bunker Hill, musket in hand. Washington did not disdain to share a blanket with him on the cold ground at Valley Forge. At the South with Marion and Green. At the North with Washington and Gates. With Wayne and Allen. It is time it should be clearly, emphatically, and proudly stated that instead of being a pauper pariah class, as is supposed, there was no movement looking to the amelioration of their condition from 1808 until John Brown's raid in 1859. Nothing which tended to unshackle the slave or remove the clogs from the free colored man in which he was not the foremost active, intelligent participant. Never a supplicant, never a mere recipient. On the contrary, he was the first to organize for his own emancipation, among the first to speak and write and print in his own behalf. One section cites the early leadership of black Bostonians in the abolition movement, eventually dragging the white abolitionists who we remember today along in their wake. Mr. Howells looks up the streets of N-Word Hill, referring to Beacon Hill, and sees only a few straggling Negroes. They are of no interest and, of course, have no story, bless you, to tell. And yet there are many stories, many traditions, much history clustering about that hill, from Cambridge Street to the Common, from Charles to Hancock. Big Dick the Boxer, Precursor of Jackson. The Blind Preacher, Raymond. Prince Hall and Easton... Master Paul and his church and school, in which the first American Anti Slavery Society was organized, January 6, 1832. It was in Master Paul's church on Belknap Street that the abolitionists, driven from Tremont Temple in 1860, found refuge and preserved their free speech for Boston and for America. If David Walker's appeal, issued in 1828, had been printed in 1765 or 70, and had been about the rights of the colonies, it would long since have attracted attention. But it was written by one of the old cloth merchants of Brattle Street, an extinct guild, and is the voice of a black John the Baptist crying in the wilderness. It attained the honor of legislative attention and a reward set for the author's head. But it is an American classic, and forever answers all hints at Negro contentment under oppression. After tallying up centuries of black accomplishment, and putting next to it in the ledger the many barriers still thrown up in front of African Americans because of their race, Greener concluded, if character, reputation, manly accomplishments, the heights reached, the palm one, still find any black hero a marked man because of no fault of his own, and church and society, home and club, united and thus ostracizing him and his children, then is it not demonstrated that it is not the black, but the white problem? which needs the most serious attention in this country. It's a career-defining polemic, and it propelled Greener to the apex of black intellectualism just months before Frederick Douglass died. Richard Greener was perfectly positioned to take up that great man's mantle upon his departure from the stage. So why is he simply remembered as the first black graduate of Harvard, and not as a thought leader in racial uplift at the turn of the 20th century alongside Du Bois and Trotter? Almost as soon as the white problem was published, Greener began pursuing a career in the foreign service. Prior to the administration of Woodrow Wilson, service in the federal government was legally and technically desegregated, and a modest number of black men were able to make careers for themselves in the post office, treasury department, and even the state department. After years of rejection, Greener was finally appointed to a post in Mumbai, India, in early 1898. But his posting was delayed because of a local outbreak of the plague. Later that year, he was appointed to a new position as the first U.S. Consul of Vladivostok, Russia. There was just one tiny problem, as recognized in the introduction to a volume of his dispatches from Vladivostok held by the U.S. Archives. On May 25, 1898, Richard T. Greener's appointment as Consul of Vladivostok was confirmed. But when he arrived at the post, the Russian authorities refused to accept his executor. On July 21st, 1898, Greener's appointment was changed to that of commercial agent, a position which the Russians accepted. The Russians didn't want a black consul, so Greener had to accept a lesser title. Nonetheless, he would remain in Russia for the next eight years, losing touch with his wife of 14 years and six children back in the U.S., and taking a Japanese-Russian woman as his common-law wife, with whom he would have three more children. He would play a small part in the negotiations ending the Russo-Japanese War, and he earned a medal from the Qing dynasty in China for helping to provide famine relief during the Boxer War. During his years in Russia, he kept writing, but now he was less focused on racial uplift and more on the Siberian fur trade, flower production in Manchuria the public water supply in Vladivostok, Russian tariffs on oleomargarine, and anything else that might be of interest to an American company trying to get a foothold in Siberia. After he returned to the U.S. in 1906, Richard Greener lost touch with both his wives and all nine of his children. He lived with extended relatives in Chicago, supporting himself through legal work and an occasional lecture series. Professor Richard Theodore Greener died in 1922 at the age of 78, already wallowing in obscurity some 30 years after the peak of his fame as a race man. That might have been the last we heard about Professor R.T. Greener, if members of a demolition crew hadn't checked inside the old trunk they found in the attic of the abandoned house they were tearing down on Chicago's south side in 2009. An article in the Chicago Sun-Times describes what they discovered. It wasn't much more than a ghost house by the time Rufus McDonald got the call. The front door of the abandoned home near 75th and Sangamon was unlocked and swinging in the wind. Drug addicts, squatters, and stray animals carried away whatever they wanted. Everything that wasn't termite-infested seemed to have been stolen. Even the copper pipes were gone. But the scavengers missed something incredible. Hidden in the attic that McDonald was contracted to clear before the home's 2009 demolition was a trunk. Inside were the papers of Richard T. Greener, the first African-American to graduate from Harvard. I didn't know who he was, said MacDonald, but as soon as I found out, I knew it was a story that had to be told. Historians thought the documents were lost in the 1906 San Francisco earthquake because Greener had passed through at the time. They were astonished to learn in the past week that Greener's 1870 Harvard diploma, water-damaged but intact, his law license, photos and papers connected to his diplomatic role in Russia, and his friendship with President Ulysses S. Grant have survived. It gives me goose flesh, said Professor Henry Louis Gates, Jr., who leads Harvard's W.E.B. Du Bois Institute for African American Research. Greener was a leading intellectual of his time. It's a remarkable discovery. His graduation blazed a trail for black Harvard intellectuals, including Gates' friend, President Barack Obama. The professor added, He was the voice before Du Bois and the president's predecessor. Rufus MacDonald held on to the papers for about three years before making the discovery public. He's faced intense criticism from academics for supposedly holding the papers hostage, even threatening to burn them at one point, after Harvard offered him what he considered an insultingly low sum for a few documents. He broke the collection up and slowly sold it off to the highest bidder. I'm no expert in rare books, but it looks like the most recent sales of Greener's papers ended around 2016. As more primary sources about Richard Greener have gone into libraries and archives, thanks in part to McDonald, it's opened up his life to scholars, including Dr. Catherine Chaddock of the University of South Carolina, Greener's old school. In 2017, she published Uncompromising Activist, Richard Greener, first black graduate of Harvard, the first book-length biography of Greener, and our first Boston Book Club pick since October. Her publisher's description says, His black friends and colleagues often looked askance at the light-skinned Greener's ease among whites, and sometimes wrongfully accused him of trying to pass. While he was overseas on a diplomatic mission, Greener's wife and five children stayed in New York City changed their names, and vanished into white society. Greener never saw them again. At a time when Americans viewed themselves simply as either white or not, Greener lost not only his family, but also a sense of clarity about race. Richard Greener's story demonstrates the human realities of racial politics throughout the fight for abolition, the struggle for equal rights, and the backslide into legal segregation. Catherine reynolds Chaddock has written a long-overdue narrative biography about a man, fascinating in his own right, who also exemplified Americans' discomforting perspectives on race and skin color. Uncompromising Activist is a lively tale that will interest anyone curious about the human elements of the equal rights struggle. And as long as we're resurrecting the Boston Book Club for a week, I might as well bring back the upcoming historical event as well. Everyone knows Paul Revere's famous engraving of the bloody massacre on King Street that helped cement the Boston Massacre in American memory. But did you know that Revere staged an elaborate visual spectacle to commemorate the first anniversary of the tragedy? Our friends at the Paul Revere House write, The Paul Revere House is excited to present a commemorative reimagining marking the 250th anniversary of Paul Revere's Boston Massacre illuminations. On March 5, 1771, Paul Revere used his recently purchased home to keep the memory of the Boston Massacre in opposition to the British occupation in Boston fresh, with a series of three illuminations displayed in the windows facing North Square. According to contemporary reports, thousands streamed by his house in silence to witness the spectacle, which was a key link in the revolutionary chain between the Boston Massacre and the Boston Tea Party. Our virtual program offers footage of a local artist's reimagining of the illuminations, descriptions from period newspaper accounts, and an in-depth panel discussion with revere-engraving expert Professor Nancy Siegel and Boston Massacre scholar Professor Serena Zabin to add context and color to this incredibly significant event. I'll have the link you need to register for the virtual event in this week's show notes. There's a $10 suggested donation, and the video debuts at 6.30 p.m. on March 5th, the 250th anniversary of the illumination and 251st anniversary of the massacre. On a personal note, I'm pretty excited to see the presentation. It's easy to find Revere's engraving. I've even seen the original copper plate etched to create it at the Commonwealth Museum. However, I've always imagined that in the world before movies and TV, the illuminations must have been transfixing. To learn more about Professor Richard T. Greener and his treatment of the white problem, check out the show notes this week at hubhistory.com 217. I'll have pictures of Greener, links to his dispatches from Vladivostok, and a copy of the white problem. I'll link to all the sources I quoted from in the show, and I'll include links to the works he created in collaboration and competition with Frederick Douglass, as well as Greener's personal recollections of Douglass after his passing. And of course, I'll have links to information about our upcoming event and Uncompromising Activist, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link, and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line, and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners.